All right. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Because Football Podcast. This is your host, Coach Andrew, and today our special guest is John Boafo, originally of Ghana, now of Abidjan Cote d'Ivoire. John, thank you so much for joining us. Andrew, it's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. Certainly. And I know we met personally a couple of weeks ago. Uh, I was very fortunate during my visit to Cote d'Ivoire to visit uh, to visit your club, the Ivoire Academies. Uh, training grounds and 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 playing grounds and, and got to see some of the uh, the Abidjan Academy Cup that was going on. It was a collection of some of the top uh, under eighteen, under nineteen academy clubs uh, within within the country, uh, and that was a great opportunity opportunity for me to see the level uh, of players there and the style of play. So, uh, before we get into that and your work with with the club, could you tell us a little bit about yourself? And and I guess the first thing that I love to ask is, what's your earliest memory of of football? That's such a really good question. Um, I actually have this, this memory is quite uh, vivid. So I remember the 1994 uh, World Cup and the final uh, Brazil versus Italy. And I remember that um, we had some fam family friends that had come to visit us from Kenya. We had just moved to France um, from Kenya two years ago, uh, two years prior to that, sorry. And I remember everyone in the room supporting Brazil. And I was the only one in that group that was supporting Italy. Oh. And I remember, I remember Roberto Baggio, that, that missed penalty. And I remember literally being on the floor crying, not even knowing why I was crying because mm -hmm. I had supported the team just from the beginning of, of the World Cup. But it was kind of random. I liked, I liked the white... Uh, jerseys that they were wearing I liked also not supporting the same team as the rest of my family and being really really sad <laughs> very oppositional right <laughs> yeah very <laughs> oppositional um, and being really like heartbroken at the fact that that Italy my newfound and beloved team had lost in the final of the World Cup against Brazil yeah there's those are those heartbreaks I can think of uh, a couple memories for me personally like Germany in 2006 when they hosted I was supporting them they lost to Italy in the the semifinals I remember the same type of uh same type of heartbreak and feeling it's like those lows of football that, that tend to stick with us um and and so after after that World Cup as we kind of continue forward um could you give us a little a little view of like kind of how football was part of your life uh, that led up to this point where now you're you're involved in the Ivar Academy yeah, so football was always kind of a, a part of my life. Um, for a little bit of background, I was born in Ghana, but my dad was a diplomat, so he moved quite a bit. Like I mentioned earlier, we lived in, in the States, moved back to France, mm -hmm. and Ghana, and then ended up here in Cote d'Ivoire. But um, from some of my youngest memories was my dad playing football with especially my oldest brother who was probably the most talented out of all all three of the boys in, in football and seeing my both of my my older brothers playing in clubs I also wanted to be inspired and uh, uh, also follow in their footsteps and, and and play so we ended up all three playing in the same team and funnily enough when my oldest brother uh, graduated they made my other brother 
captain. And then uh, when he graduated, I ended up being the captain. So those are my fondest memories. Um, my level peaked at probably 17, and then it's all been downhill since then. But I um, <laughs> love being involved in football. And um, not at the, as the best of players, but you know, throughout the years, you get to understand football as a business. Mm. Not only the entertaining side, but you know everything that has to do with players, how to improve players, how to um, to move on players, how to help them also with some of the the challenges that they face, especially on the African continent, with some of the pressures that they get from their families. Mm. Yeah, so so for a lot of people, they get hand me downs of clothes from their older siblings. You got the captain's armband handed down uh, uh, through each through each uh, successive brother. So I'd love to, love to hear that. Um, you mentioned exactly. kind of like, yeah, you mentioned kind of getting like a sense of, uh, of like the business side yeah. of football. Right. And, and I know you had a, a strong background yourself within, within marketing. Um, and, and so obviously you were more in a corporate world there. And, and so wh- what do you think was one of those initial insights, uh, for you of like, Hey, like I, I get a sense of, of maybe how this football business might work and and what was your kind of initial interest to to get involved in the game because it's of the many people I talk to obviously it's a passion it's a global sport it you know it it can be at the top levels it can be very profitable we see the superstar status that you know in the contracts that the Messi's and Ronaldo's and, and those top level players are getting but throughout the world there's such ranges uh within that and and football really is a risky business i would say in so many aspects um compared to some others that we might see so so what was kind of your initial like pull and draw to get get involved in that side of the game so funny enough from a young age, the two things that I wanted to do was either become an investment banker or a football agent. Uh, don't ask me why, but it was just one of those things that stuck in my head. And um, so I went to study, when I went to study at the University of Georgia, I ended up um, studying risk management insurance, thinking, okay, I'm just going to go and work in, in an investment bank. And then when I started working and then I eventually moved to, to Ghana, um, I got I got basically thrown in the deep end in, in the sports sports world. Um, at the time, I was trying to qualify for uh, the Olympics, um, the uh, the Rio Olympics as a rower. Right. So I'm the first Guinean rower to to represent the country, and I met people here and there. And through that network, I was I landed a job uh, working at Right to Dream Academy in Ghana. Right to Dream is one of the best uh, football academies in in Africa um, and probably around the world. And uh, in my role as head of operations there, I was able to see uh, the the business side of, of, of football because as a fan, especially as a fan of PSG, you kind of idealize the, the world of football. But once you're in there, you see what's happening, the deals mm-hmm. that happen, et cetera. You do realize that it is a, it's a world which is set apart. Um, it's a world which is based really on a lot of competence, but a lot of who you know as well, because deals get done with the people that you know, and deals get done with the people that you also appreciate. So it's a world which is which is kind of hard to get into, and one would even say that it's opaque at certain times. But you know, I encourage people who are interested in getting into the world of football and the world of also sports management in general to you know try to track the crack the egg and and try to get into the to the business. And and so you said your role was as 
like head of operations. I don't think on the podcast so far we've had someone in that that type of role. Could you talk about maybe what what your responsibilities and like kind of what your impact was to to the academy within that operations role? Yeah, so as a head of operations of, of Right to Dream, I was uh, what you'd call kind of like the glue of between all the, the the various departments. So at Right to Dream, like at Eval Academy, there's a there's a school like a full time school that uh, all the student athletes that are there okay. um, go to. Um, there's also the football side, and at Right to Dream, there's the particularity of having what they call the the character development program. Um, so basically, ensuring that all the various departments would uh, communicate effectively. And then within my role as well as head of operations, I also helped with some of the, the operations, like day-to-day -day operations. So supervising the, the kitchen, you know, we had about eight staff with, within the kitchen, ensuring that we had um, the best chef. So when I came in, one of the things that we worked on was getting a chef that uh, we got um, who had worked uh, for about 13 years in South Africa at some of the best hotels and was also at the time working at one of the best hotels in Ghana. So he had the experience of cooking for a lot of people with the mm -hmm. pressure that comes with it. And he also understood the, the importance of giving healthy and great meals so that our players are able to to also um, perform on the pitch so that those are basically some of the things that i was able to do within that role and um yeah i mean it was kind of like a learning school as well because at the time right to dream uh, had been close to 20 years uh, in 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 operation and you know things were accelerating during my time there is when the right to dream group also acquired fc Norseland, which is a first division team right in denmark and mm -hmm. being part of that project and some other projects was was um, probably some of the highlights of, of my career so far um i really learned it was it was during that time there that i really learned how to um basically the the the, the business side of, of, of football in general fascinating and and for many who don't know i encourage you to to research right to dream academy it's you know academy is not only putting players at a, a european level um, but also you know for my connection obviously to the united states sending a lot of players to to top uh, prep schools high schools private schools here in the states and then on to to the university level and many guys ending up in in mls getting drafted or being signed by mls clubs so um you really see the Kind of the the one of the the one of the two things you mentioned there that I wanted to bring up was obviously the educational piece. But before it, I'd like to talk about like that nutrition side because for me, from getting access and starting to learn more about African football, like uh, as a whole, and depending on where you are, obviously Africa being a, a massive continent, you know, fifty plus countries, uh, you can't just make one blanket statement. However. For many, many kids that are coming from lower class families, uh, let's say, and even in Cote d'Ivoire, for example, you know, the, the right nutrition is massive, right? And it's something that's become much more important in football here in the States, in Europe, around the world in the last 15 years or so is that emphasis on nutrition um, and like what to eat and what not. We have the privilege in the United States of if for, for many families, like you have access to the right types of food and nutrition. So could you talk about like the role that nutrition plays and, and how pivotal it can be and kind of make or break for players uh, in their careers, specifically within your context? 
Yes, certainly. I mean, food in general on the African continent is something that's really important um, because certain people, like you mentioned earlier, don't have access to the best kinds of food or only have access to a certain kind of food. So there's a lot of, of emotions which are tied in with food. Um, but one of our reflections was we need to ensure that their adaptation when they go to the States or they go to Europe can be as seamless as possible. Mm -hmm. Ensure that when they become a professional or if they become a student athlete at the high mm -hmm. school level or even at the college level, even if they end up being in the MLS, the kinds of food that they're able to, to eat um, is not foreign to them. So that's one of the reasons why we ended up bringing in the chef um, because we basically want to do everything to ensure that they have basically all the right tools in their hand so they can understand the importance of, of nutrition, understand the importance of being hydrated, understand the importance of also being able to rest because there's those fine margins which really make a huge difference when mm -hmm. you are a professional player. So from a young age, you want to ensure that, you know, they, they, they're able to eat don't enjoy eating a balanced diet and not only eating for example just rice and chicken or something um but yeah so that that was basically our reflection and that's that's what led to us um bringing in the chef that, thanks for sharing that i think it's so interesting and i imagine uh, it was easier said than done in some cases because from people i've talked to even at a professional level it's a challenge to get players to eat uh what they should eat what the nutritionists are recommending and so especially when you're talking about adolescent boys uh and kind of their background they you know they kind of want to eat what, what they know and i know at least for a lot of kids that, that i coach in the u.s too uh you know pre-game meals is sometimes fast food or whatever mom and dad could just grab on the way to the game and i remember <laughs> i remember something a couple of years ago we had a an early game so i think i was already a little bit in a bad mood for having to get up so early and uh and we lost and uh we lost pretty pretty handily uh probably our worst of the season like the best team we played all season so i was really annoyed and kind of frustrated now bear in mind this is nine-year-old girls right so i'm all frustrated after the game and uh one of the dads shows up with like a bag of of like burgers basically uh from like burger king or mcdonald's right after the game and we're in a tournament so this was supposed to be like the, the power food for the rest of the tournament. And I just remember like he offered one to me and I just like, I was like, no, thank you. And I turned away and I just like all the, all the things going through my head, like the generosity of this dad <laughs> to bring food for the whole team. Yet it's this stuff. And I'm like, we just, how are you? anyway, so I know that that, that can be a challenge itself, um, but, but very, very uh, important approach to kind of prepare players, not only for what they're going to get on the field, but like culturally off the field as well, which can have such a massive impact on whether they succeed or not. Uh, and then the second thing you'd mentioned that I really want to get into too uh, is, is education, right? So I know that with right to dream with uh, you mentioned there, I was not aware, but with Ivar Academy, with, JMG with, with, uh, I imagine like generation foot similar in Senegal, a lot of these bigger academies, uh, and, and it's a model we've started to adopt in the United States. We have, um, YSC Academy here in Philadelphia, that is, you know, residential school in addition to playing football. So why is that kind of necessary, um, within, within kind of the, your context in Cote d'Ivoire and what are some of the benefits that it gives you and, and advantages compared to some of the other academies out there that might only be offering football? Yeah, so 
a lot of times the parents are keen on their kids uh, potentially becoming professional footballers. But some parents also have the understanding that just because they're in academy doesn't mean that they'll automatically become a football player, a professional right. football player. And just because they become a professional football player doesn't mean that they'll be able to get paid enough to be able to sustain them in the long term. Uh, there's only so many Mbappes and Neymars of the world who are making basically, you know, most of the more money than most of the other professional football players. So it's important that they continue the education for a couple of reasons. The first thing is so they can also be able to be curious about the world. Um, certain players will might might become obsessed with history or become uh, obsessed with, with math or things that will occupy the time if they do uh, end up becoming a professional football off, off the field because a lot of times you know they have a lot of they have a lot of time outside of, of training so instead of just only playing on the playstation or doing other things they can also continue and further their education i know mm -hmm. for example that vincent company ended up getting his master's degree even while he was playing and i believe also mata did the same and a couple there are other examples of, of a couple of players who were able to do that so that's one thing to be able to to, to give that that hunger of continuous that learning, continuous improvement on and also off the field. So that's the first thing. And then secondly, you don't know what's going to happen. Uh, you might get an injury, something might not be able to work out and being able to fall on on, on the possibility of, of, um, of, you know, leaning on your education, something that's really important. I write to dream, for example, because the, players spoke English there's that possibility now of them going to some of the top high schools in the states and then also going to some of the the top um, colleges in the UK and in the states on, on full scholarships so um, the the it just basically broadens the opportunities that you're able to Uh, I want to only produce football players. We also want to produce players that can also have an impact uh, on their communities. And um, some of our players, for example, uh, with a partnership that we have with with uh, a team um, uh, that supports student athletes in France, a couple of our players last year, three of them okay. exactly, uh, went to France to continue their, their education after getting their uh, high skill diploma. And that's something that we're trying to push on more and more because at the end of the day, we want to be able to see not only football, football players coming out of the academy, but people who end up uh, doing other things uh, with their lives uh, later on. Um, there was one kid, for example, that was before my time here, um, who has now ended up being, um, he went all the way to, got his high school diploma, started playing professionally, and then that didn't work out. And then he's now become an entrepreneur. So he, um, he, yeah. Yeah, he, he runs his own barbershop. Uh, I believe he was cutting the hair of the Guinea team, one of the teams that's during the AFCON. So, you know, that's another inspiring story for, for the kids because we all want to become football players. I mean, 100%. even I want to until until I peaked at 17. But at the end of the day, there's only so many slots for professional football players. So um, use what you learned on and off the field in the environment like an EVO Academy to be able to, to, to improve your life and, and do something else. Yeah, 100%. Like you said, it, 
even in that example you gave it your the boy did go pro for a short time but it's such a such a tough world you know um and 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 like you could pick up an injury and and as i mentioned there's just so much so many risky things involved so i think you know i, I really love to see like the model that you have at Evora Academy and, and other similar ones where that educational component is, is key. Um, even if someone goes on and is very successful and has a stable career, then it's still like, well, you sure you get 15 years, maybe 20 years, uh, maybe a little more. If you keep yourself in physical shape, like Ronaldo, I don't think he's shown any time of, uh, any sign of stopping, but, but it's always like, there's going to be an after, right. And there's going to be a significant portion of your life that is the after. Uh, so I think that given that the educational piece is important. So, so you've kind yeah, of mentioned, and, yeah. And, and sorry. And, and to add sure. to, to your point, um, I think I mentioned this earlier. Sometimes there's some family pressure on the professional players. So if you look at the story of uh, Adebayor, uh, for example, or some other, there are other stories like that where families putting on pressure or, if you also don't understand how to manage your money and you trust in certain people and then eventually you get squandered. So, you know, being able to have that education, not only um, in the classroom, mm -hmm. but education about you, how to manage your finances, um, how to manage your career, um, all that stuff is really important because like you said, maybe it's a 20 year career and then, you know, you have another 40, 50 years to live. What are you going to do with that time? Exactly. I got to try to stretch that that money to, to cover as far as you can. And you touch on the family pressures, which is something that for me coming from the United States, like maybe I, I can see a little bit of it, but I really have no idea what the average kid trying to make it, you know, especially in a, in a, let's say Cote d'Ivoire now hosting the, the AFCON tournament, the, the con tournament, you see the passion. They're just like crazy about football. Right. And I know it's the case in much of Africa. And, and so obviously the dream of every child is to be, you know, now that the Seiko Fofanas, right. That the Sangares, it was to be the Torres and the Drogbas. Um, and, and so that's the goal and the dream. And, and obviously the family around that seems the financial side sees the, the material upside to that. And in, in some cases that's kind of like the, the best option to, to change their lives. So could you talk mm -hmm. about like, you know, we, we look in the United States with the kids that I coach and train, there are, are, parental pressures as coaches, you know, sometimes it sours our experience, but for us, it's, it's usually not, Oh, little Johnny needs to go pro. It's more of just things like little Johnny isn't getting as much playing time as he should, or why are you coaching like that? Or it gets more into like the, the granular things with a lot of parent complaints and not as, and sure, maybe it's like, or the team needs to do better, but but in the state, it's more of a dream of going to college, playing in college, playing in university. Um, and then some people are just like, I'm happy to my kid just to love the game and enjoy it and I'll support that. But so that's more of like our context. So could you share a little bit more, like maybe from the, obviously what the kid is feeling, the, the parental side, and obviously there's the good, the bad and the ugly when it comes to those family situations. But could you share a little bit of like that side of things that the average person outside of, of Cote d'Ivoire, outside of, of West Africa, like just wouldn't really know about or understand? So it really depends on the beginning and most times, if they come in, for example, say at the age of 12, 
the kids are really just passionate about football and they want to do everything. All they want to do is they just play football, play football, know that they have a skill, that they have a talent, and they're usually better than most of the other players that they've played against in their area or in their neighborhood. So they, their thing is really, I want to be able to play football in a good environment, try to get as good as possible and then see what the opportunities are. There's always that dream to be the next Seku Fofana or Toure or Ebue or some of these other professional players. Uh, and that's usually the drive that they are from, from the kids' point of view. It's really when you get uh, to a certain level, probably 16, 17, close to 18, where the real pressure starts to, to come. Uh, when they're younger, uh, a lot of times, well, it depends on, on the parents' background, but if the parents' background uh, is is from more of the, the, the poorer side, a lot of times they're also quite relieved to have one less um, uh, mouth to, to feed. They're just really excited that their kids will be able to be in a good environment where they'll be able to have fun, enjoy their football, improve their footballing skills, and then be able to also go to school. So there's less so pressure at that age, but the older they get, the more difficult it ends up becoming. Mm. If a player, for example, plays for a youth national team, that's when um, some of the less so palatable people in, in in the industry will start to start circling around um, especially very talented players what ends up happening sometimes is and I'm sure this is something that also happens in in Europe and in other contexts where you know regardless of the rules they'll try to skirt the rules to try to ensure that the player signs at this or that club as well so that's where the pressure comes uh, and but I, I'm also conscious of the fact that it's, it's a difficult situation also for your parents. Imagine you're not making that much money and someone comes and says, hey, listen, mm -hmm. you're a 16, 17-year-old kid. Um, we would like for him to leave the academy that he's in and then sign with our academy and we'll give you, say, $10,000. Yeah. You know, at the end of the day, it's money that they would have probably not seen or not seen very often in their life. And it's life-changing money for them at that scale. So... That's what uh, becomes a little bit um, odd, and it it ends up putting pressure on the the family sometimes to make decisions which are good for them potentially in the in the short term, but in the long run might also hamper the 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 development of the kid and then also the chances, especially um, if they're in an environment like an Eva Academy where we're very um, I was going to say mothering, but that's not the right word, where we're very conscious of taking care of the children and ensuring that we give them the best opportunities and the best settings to be able to succeed later down the line. So um, that that's that at our, our age level. But, you know, as professionals, once you start making money, then things become, uh, they, they become difficult. Mm -hmm. uh, and this is something that's worldwide. I know that professional players that, turn professional at 15, 16 in France, for example, and are making more money than their parents, then they become basically the head of the household, yes. which is a burden, which is very difficult to put on at that, that age. And I don't know for you, but when I was 17, 18, even if I was in college already, I wasn't the smartest of kids. <laughs> I remember uh, when I was sent off to college, my dad uh, gave me some $500 and it was more money than I had seen before in my whole life, at least on my bank account. And then I ended up 
get into the states and buying like a palm pilot or something stupid like that and using all the money <laughs> and then having right. to get a job at the end of the day so imagine that at five hundred dollars and if you're making two hundred thousand dollars a year three hundred thousand five hundred thousand dollars at 15 16 18 or so it's quite a uh, a lot of money and nowadays also with the pressure of of social media and you know the dms that they can they, they get etc it's really not an easy Thing to become a professional player so it's important to have uh an environment and and a circle that is understanding and that are there for the long term because it's, you might be making money in your first uh contract and you think that's the most money you're going to be able to make but if you put your head down you keep working hard it's on your second third contract that you really be able to make significant exactly. amount of money and be yeah. able to to really change the lives of, of your family as well so that's really the advice that i've given to some some um, young professional african players before uh and i would I'd give it to to any professional players just just because you were the best under 16 player in the world doesn't mean that when you're 18 you're playing with men that it's going to continue so keep working mm -hmm. hard and keep improving daily and 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 the financial rewards will come after that yeah exactly you make a great point with like it's it's great that you've made it to the point to get that first contract and you're getting a little taste of what it could be but it's really about contract number four number five like do you have the ability to to make it to that that point right and that's where that is probably not as much to do with talent as it is to do with the mental side and, and how you're managing your personal life and those type of things that can really like keep you going forward. What would you say that, that Ivor Academy, you know, the current club you're a part of, what, what advantage do you guys have? Or, or let's say you're, you're competing for a really talented 12, 13 year old to join the Academy. Like what what do you try to present to the families as why they should go with with you guys versus you know one of the other clubs uh, that that is knocking on their door? Well, there's a couple of things. Uh, first of all, we've been around for much longer than some of the other academies. So we've, we've been around for 22 years. It was started in uh, 2002, and then we've had some some of the the top players, including Jervinho, that have come through the academy. So okay. that in of itself already um, shows you the kind of of talent that's come through Ivoire Academy. So that's the first thing. And then also what really stands out compared to some other academies, because there are really a lot of academies in, in Cote d'Ivoire these days, is the settings that we have. We have a 40-acre um, campus with, with seven pitches, one pitch, which is a, a, a beach soccer pitch. We have the dorms that are there. We have the schools that are there. Um, we also take care of our kids well, the uh, ratio of, of students to to um, teachers in our classrooms is quite low. So there's really this like tailor-made environment that really is there to ensure that the talent is be able to, to be maximized to, to, to the fullest. Yes, there's certain things that we need to be able to improve on like anywhere, but um, the parents are pretty sure that they will be in the right environment compared to some of the other places where, yes, there's the pressure to perform and do your best that you can, but we are also um, in it to ensure that our, um, our our kids, our student athletes are also good citizens and end up doing something with their life, be it as a professional footballer 
or, mm -hmm. or, or as an entrepreneur or even an employee at the end of the day. So I'll give you an example. We have this one player who was with us um, all throughout the academy. Actually, there are three examples of that. And in the end, they played professional or they didn't. And um, we helped them also go back to school get their coaching licenses and they're now coaches as well, like junior coaches uh, okay. at the academy as well. So, you know, we really care for for the players. And if if they um if they go along with what we tell them to to do, um, and if they, you know, play the game as 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 it were and do what the do their best, uh, there's always something that's gonna something positive that's gonna come out of it um, on their side. And the parents are are, are um, aware of that and that's probably one of the reasons why they send us some of the top talents to our place and what would you say is like kind of the you know the word gets thrown around a lot like the dna of a navarre academy player or, or that that's the type of player you guys try to develop you know um i think for me i, I definitely saw when i was watching your team like very very technical uh really competitive like that game you guys had against jmg like just so physical at one point you guys had to walk. I think Raheem walked out on there and had to give everybody like a little heart to heart to calm down. Yeah. Like the, the passion yeah. was flying. It was, it was amazing to see. Uh, but what would you guys say is kind of like the, the type of player you're looking for to develop that where it's like, Hey, if you see him, it's like, that's, that's an Ovar Academy kid. Yeah. Like you mentioned, they need to be technically sound. They also need to be able to show the passion. And then there's also a sense of arrogance that, yes, I, I can be the best player in the academy. I can be the best player in in the in the uh, in Cote d'Ivoire. That's something that we're also looking for. And then we also are confident that in the time that they spend with us, we'll be able to improve them. So a lot of the players come in at the age of, you know, between 10 to, to 12, and they really start with what we call uh, um, in French, la gamme. I don't know what it is in English, but basically on a daily basis, when they train, they usually train twice twice a day. Um, it's, it's basic things like juggling, juggling with your left foot, juggling with your right foot, um, juggling on your head, juggling with your thighs, um, juggling with, with your shoulders, et cetera. And it gets to a level where they, they should be able to do that quite easily and be able to you know go back and forth and that's that's when the serious things start to happen um, because we know that they have the technical base to be able to to uh, to uh, express themselves on on the field so there's the, the technical ability uh, that's the key thing like i said earlier the passion mm -hmm. and then also that that kind of arrogance so i like the that that term you use like the arrogance piece right because it's something that is kind of innate in the personality of a player. And I think that when you talk about all the challenges that come your way to make it to a professional level, like you have to have that, that self-belief. Is there, is there a way you think to, to instill more of that? Like part of, I think is the role of a coach is to, to kind of like believe in, in your players, right. And, and have them trust you and, and know that you have their back. Right. And, and that goes as a coach that goes as director of the a club. Right. And yes, there's going to be accountability and you have to perform because it is that competitive environment, but knowing that the kid really, you know, can trust, like, do you think it's possible to, to create some of that, that arrogance, as you said, some of that, that self-belief as I might use a term, like, or, or is that kind of just fixed within the individual they're born with it? And, you know, that's just their kind of gift or curse uh, to carry through life. 
I think that's something that you can instill it into some of the players, but the ones who are the best have it naturally. And I think it's from the fact that, like I mentioned earlier, they know that in the neighborhood, they're probably the best player in the area, that they're the best player, the teams that they're playing in, they're the best player and everyone else recognizes it. So from a younger age, they know that they are, you know, um, they're ahead of, of the rest of the players. But then what ends up happening is you might be the best player in this specific neighborhood. And then when you come to the academy, you're grouping all the best players. Mm-hmm. So it, the, the head level is is higher. So they need to ensure that they keep that self-belief and they keep working hard as, uh, as well. Because at the end of the day, um, it's really about how hard you work as well. The talent part is something. But you look at certain players like if... I were to mention a James Milner. I'm sure he's mm-hmm. a talented player, but you can see that his whole life has been around football. Yeah. The way that he takes care of himself, the way that he works hard in all the training sessions, which has led to him playing in the Premier League for such a long time. So I'd rather have a player like that that I know that on a daily basis they know that you know the tables have been reset and today I need to work as hard as I can. Mm-hmm. Um, than someone who thinks and knows that they're talented and so they they kind of drop off. At the end of the day, we need to be able to work hard and on the long term. And that's really the only way that you can have a any kind of success, be it um be it on on the field or off the field, is constant work, constant hard work, mm-hmm. and a certain level of also conscientiousness as well. I've seen certain players that um, are almost obsessive um, from the age of 10, 11. And, you know, they'll get upset if things don't work and they'll keep working harder and work harder and working harder. And you kind of have that eye and say, okay, whatever happens, this player will be able to make it at some kind of professional level. It might not be at a Barcelona level or a Real Madrid level, but you know that they'll work as hard as they can to be able to, to make it through, um, barring, you know, some kind of... Uh, some kind of injury or something sure. bad happened to them, yeah. you know that they'll they'll be able to make it at the end of the day. So, um, so to just to answer your question, but to go back to your point, um, it's something that can be instilled, but I think it's also something that is is ingrained. You know, they need to be able to push themselves from from yeah, like they need to have that self belief to push mm-hmm. themselves because at the beginning it might come from the coaches, it might come from their parents, but they need to also interiorize this and exactly. and, and and decide to push them themselves. I was listening to this podcast the other day by Thierry Henry that was saying that at the beginning of his career, or not the beginning of his career, but when he started playing football, he was doing it to please his father. And, you know, and his father was quite harsh, so he would work hard to please his father. And then it got to a point where he basically took it upon himself to to continue to push himself. And it wasn't only about his father, but it was about what is the best version of a Thierry as a footballer can I be? Mm-hmm. And so that's basically kind of what, what I would say would be the evolution of, of um, this self-belief or the arrogance that we've used before. Yeah, no, I, I agree. Like, again, as a coach, we can do that. But once that kid leaves you and he's in another environment, he's in another team, maybe he's with a coach who doesn't maybe give that same level of care and attention. Like, is that just going to fall off or is it going to, and I think it is a personal thing and, and each, each individual is going to be different. Um, What would you say then if yeah. we, yep. Sorry. And, and, and to add to that, 
as a coach, I mean, I'm not a coach, but uh, as a coach, you also need to understand the kid because there's certain kids that need a pat on the back, but certain kids that actually respond to the contrary of that. It's when you shout yeah. at them, they're, they're like, okay, I need to step up. So you need to be able to understand them to know, okay, this guy needs a pat on the back. This one needs to, you know, to be shout at or or to be talked to a bit more harsher or uh, or something and then there's also anything that's in between but basically you can't speak to all 11 or 25 of your players the same way because that's not you know you need to be able to to, to tailor made um, and individualize um, your approach to each of the, of the players I agree i think that's a big piece of whether it's coaching or then you more even more in a, a director role of like understanding each individual when you're scouting them originally seeing if they're a good fit then being able to assess if they're you know still kind of at the level they need to be to be a part of the academy going forward i think it's knowing the individual and yeah you, you can't just kind of paint it all with one the, the same brush so to speak it has to be individualized if we look at you know we're talking about individuals but i'm curious of, of getting a little bit more into kind of the the big picture within Ivorian football like my my perception after spending just a very brief week there, so knowing pretty much nothing and also being exposed to just certain areas, obviously there's a passion for the game. Uh, the, the nature of just being with the ball constantly leads to emphasis on, on technique, right? And I've seen that a lot through the, like your side and the, those youth games. Um, but what do you, what would you say are, are some of the, the, the challenges that, that Ivorian football has been facing now, or even in the, the few years since you've been involved with the Academy, like what are those challenges or kind of uh, hurdles that need to be, be kind of stepped over to get to the next level again? Cause we can look and, and look at on paper, this is a, a solid uh, Ivorian team right now in the AFCON. We know the performance has not been there but on paper. You could say it's still definitely a top 10 squad as far as the, the clubs, the leagues are playing in within Europe. Um, but it's still not quite the golden generation of the Torre brothers or, or Drogba's generation. So, so what do you think are some of those challenges or, or, or things that need to be improved to kind of uh, get, get Cote d'Ivoire back on into the world cup stage. And, and, you know, one of those elite uh, elite teams in the world that we've known they have been in the past. I would say you probably want to rely on a model, which is more similar to the Senegalese uh, model. So recently the Senegalese teams have been killing it at the under 17 level or the under 20 level, and then also winning the AFCON uh, mm -hmm. at the senior level at, at the last edition. Um, you want to basically promote and encourage um, private initiatives of football academies and ensure that um, they have also opportunities and, and, and pathways for the players that they'll be able to produce into the the, the national team. Um, and so that's something that probably Cote d'Ivoire needs to, to be able to improve on. There's a lot of football academies in Cote d'Ivoire. Um, like you mentioned, some of the other ones like GMG, Ivoire Academy will be there as well, Abidjan City, uh, et cetera. Um, and those are some of the more professional ones, uh, but they're also, you know, I would say as an estimate, hundreds of other ones which are, um, that are in, in neighborhoods that are not well known, et cetera. But why not rely on the bigger structures and, and ensure that there's a collaboration between the Federation and then some of these bigger structures to ensure that there's a pipeline of talent that's there that can uh, integrate the, the 
the um, the youth national teams and then also the first teams because what ends up happening is if at the under 17 level they're able to participate in an AFCON or even a um, an international um, competition like the World Cup etc um, it gives them uh, it gives them more more opportunities to to do other things outside um, to be able to sign a professional contract and to be in in the best kinds of environments that's going to help them develop as a team and then eventually that's going to reflect on, on the first team so I would say um, you know collaborating with with football academies as a federation would certainly be a really good way to to improving things because um, if if the federation collaborated more with us and um, understood what our goals are and we understood also what their goals were, there would be some kind of some symbiotic um, partnership which mm -hmm. would help the national team move forward as well. So that that's the main thing I would say. Um, you know, really copying or getting inspired of from the Senegalese model um, to help things improve. So it sounds like then currently there just might not be a lot of uh, symbiosis or 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 kind of um, shared vision, I guess, between the FA and the clubs that kind of each have their own own uh, own kind of goals they're trying to achieve, but separately. And it sounds like too on the the club side with all the academies it might be a case of uh, so many academies operating that it is kind of like spreading that talent pool wider rather than maybe concentrating it a bit. And I think, I think there's, there's arguments for both. I am a proponent of, of really building up, you know, if you want to build better elite players, well then you have to improve the lower level players because then when you're, you know, that, that lower level is stronger then you going towards the middle and then the elite, like it all pushes up. Uh, I know mm -hmm. that are other places that believe more in an approach of like, Hey, we're going to take the 25 best 14 year olds. And we're going to, you know, like a Claire Fontaine type of approach in France, which obviously has, has had its merits, but I, I know that the United States had a similar system in the nineties and two thousands with, with more, let's say disputable success. So I'm not sure where I fall on that, but it sounds like uh, right now everything is just really kind of spread out without having a, a particular, you know, it's not a pyramid going to one point. It's maybe a lot of different, different uh, type of systems going in their own directions. Yeah, certainly. And and to, to add to that point, uh, the Federation does a really, really good job with the leagues that they that they organize. So um, Ivar Academy's first team currently plays in the third division. Uh, there are 40 teams in the in the third division split into four groups and the first uh, of each of the groups then gets promoted. Uh, to the second division and then four from the second division then get demoted as well um and, and so that works really well but i think something that would really help would be organizing really youth youth leagues if you're thinking about even at the age of 14 to 16 um, that that would be helpful because then we'll be able to to have the best 14 to 16 year olds being able to to compete against each other at, at a national level and mm -hmm. then also get to know what the other talent is is around um and and be able to 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 sort it out and it's something that only the federation really can do um the private initiatives can do that once in a while similar to the tournament that you were able to to come to exactly. visit but um at, at that level it 
it, it demands the resources and the kind of planning that only a federation is able to to put in place. Okay, so you mentioned you mentioned like a youth league of let's say the top U sixteen, and and that's something I heard as well, even from the 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 FA too. I spoke with the the technical director, Mr. Batelli, and he mentioned that as probably one of his top you know, definitely in the top five of, of measures that he'd like to see uh, as well. Uh, another thing he mentioned is facilities, right? And so with Ivar Academy, I was blown away. Like you guys definitely, you have your own little footballing world back there. You're driving through the, the, uh, the grounds and the field just pops up on one side of the road. Then you, and there's a couple more and, uh, and we won't even get into the, the old vintage planes that are scattered around. Like it's, <laughs> you know, like it's Jurassic park or something like that, which is definitely lost, something we got to exactly like lost. So we got to, got to talk about for sure. It's is very unique and everybody will be seeing that uh, on the videos I put out. But, mm -hmm. um, so, so another thing that was mentioned and I heard a lot of different people talk about was facilities, the quality facilities. Now you guys have to be in a, a really, kind of, I would imagine, I, I feel like just in a week, I saw a decent array between you guys, between FC San Pedro as well, like really beautiful facilities. Um, and then I, you know, I'm talking to people and it's like, and there are a lot of investment made in the tournament uh, facilities and the stadiums for, for AFCON and they look beautiful. Mm -hmm. And it's a question of, all right, what happens after, what impact do they have after? And, and maybe in Abidjan, it's one story being a more densely populated area, but especially in your more remote places like your Corhogos and Boakes, like what kind of impact are they going to have on the game at a regional level there? But what would you say like the, like, obviously you guys have an advantage of beautiful grass pitches, you know, is spectacular. And, and then you have the, the beach soccer as well. Like, so you guys are obviously in a great position, but in general, do you see facilities as as something that has been holding Ivorian football back or or do you see it as a matter of just hey this actually could be you know helping to shape these really technical type of players like where do you see on the whole like let's say facilities tied in with the street football versus just all those many academies and the, the resources that they have yeah so um funny enough having these these pitches require a lot of resources in terms of building the pitches and then also the, the maintenance of the pitches. So I think as it stands, the most important is to be able to have places for these kids to be able to train from a young age. Um, having Even if it's just like a, a dirt pitch um, and it's there that they'll improve their first touches, it's there that they'll really be able to, to build on um, some of the, the technical abilities that, that, that they that they'll be able to show at a professional level or even you know at the academy level. If you look at certain places, can like like Brazil or even other places within within Africa, um, a lot of times they don't tend to play on proper pitches uh, until later on. And then if you're looking at the the case of Brazil, they even tend to play in in futsal, so right. close close control, um, better skills, etc. So I don't think that it's much of an issue. Um, right now, because there's the passion, so the some of these kids like they'll um, they'll just take a ball and and be kicking around even if it's a dirt pitch. Um, in Abidjan, one of the things that happens today being a Sunday, I, you see it quite a lot. They'll like basically unofficially close off a road and start playing in the middle of the road. They'll put, you know, a couple posts and then if a car comes, they'll move the post and then they'll put them back and then start playing. But some of these side roads. So that really helps with with them improving and and, and become better players. But um 
but at an academy level and then at a higher level as well, you definitely need to have some some good training pitches because, um, for example, in the third division, we have been um, we have been we have gone and traveled to some other parts of of, of the city, uh, not of the city, sort of, of of the country to be able to play other teams and some of the pitches that we were able to, that we had to play on were, were just terrible. Pitches that were built some time ago and then the maintenance wasn't wasn't done and they're just really bad, in, in a really bad state. And, um, but like I said, the most difficult thing is always maintenance, the cost that's associated with maintenance. And that's, that's my primary worry. And that's one of the things that will always make a place like Evo Academy or FC San Pedro, like you mentioned earlier, stand out compared to some of them. Um, yeah, the um, smaller academies. Yeah, I think the the distinction you make is important, and this is something that's been going on in my head. Of you know exactly like you said, like we look at Brazil, right? Bar none, the greatest exporter of footballing talent ever, and like they play futsal a lot until younger ages, and then even when so, like you know, it's a country that has its own economic challenges and and big ranges. So you have the the best of the best that you can possibly you know that money but can possibly buy and then you also have you know the the dirt pitches or sand or gravel and and so it's like i think to your point of at what level does it become become uh kind of a a net negative on on the ability and i i would agree that once you're getting to those academy you know you're you're 15 year old plus um, you know, one thing I, I mentioned with the technical directors, he's saying, you know, you have a lot of a lot of kids who who don't play on a regular 11 aside pitch till they're like 18, 19 when they're ready to make a professional debut. And so that is something that sure in the bubble of, of Ivorian football, if everyone's in the same context, it is what it is. But then when you're looking to compete uh, on a global stage, even a regional stage, you kind of see some of the. The, the impact again to my point of like trying to bring up the bottom of the talent well if if even players who are playing at an elite level are, are experiencing that then that's going to be a challenge um with with in terms of like we you know we look at facilities different resources like obviously uh football is as we touched on one of the first things we said is you know football is a business it is something that everyone loves the passion the excitement of the game it is a business and and to make investments in the facilities and uh, and in the field and even to have like a, a residence like you guys have and have nutrition and and have all those resources to to hopefully put the players in the best position possible, uh, it takes it takes investment right and sometimes in football we get the 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 benefactor who just loves football and has has you know made their their riches somewhere and wants to put it into the game. Sometimes it's, it's, we're looking, we need a kind of a, we need to have some kind of revenue coming back in. Right. And obviously that mostly within football, it's that, that selling of players, moving them on to Europe or other bigger leagues within leagues within Africa. So what does that look like from like the point of view of Ivor Academy? You guys said even your first team is mostly 18 and 19. And so the, the belief, the, the ethos is that development of players, right. And to move them on. So what does that start to look like when, okay, we see within our team or, you know, we, we've got a striker who's ready to, to make the next step, or we've got our center back is ready. Or when you've got those, you know, your top 10, 15% that really are that level, what do those conversations start to look like with the player, with the family? Who are we talking to within football? Is it agents coming to you? Is it 
directly club to club? Um, are there other, you know, is you know, are there scouts coming from certain clubs? Like how does that, that typically start to happen? So typically um, from the player side, it's, ensure, it's important to ensure that you keep the family in the loop. Uh, the family wants to know because at the time, usually at 17, getting to 18, they know that their uh, their their son is has the potential of becoming a professional football player. Um, so you need to ensure that you keep the family in the loop to let them know, okay, listen, these are the options. This is our plan. Um, and then from then on, it really will depend. So sometimes we have some scouts that come to, to visit that are interested in certain players, sometimes as agents uh, directly. Um, sometimes some of the players get agents then, then come and, and have conversations with us as well. And sometimes it's the clubs directly. Um, so there's no really any set way of, of doing it um yeah it can really could just come from from anywhere um and then you know what ends up happening typically is there'll be trials and to be able to maximize um uh, travel you know potentials uh because on this part of the world um visas is one of those things that sometimes mm. it's not very easy to get yeah uh, you want to ensure that if for example they're going to uh, a spanish club for a trial uh, potentially maybe let's go and let them see two or three clubs instead of only one um, to 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 give them the best chance to be able to to sign uh, one of the clubs as well because you never know um, maybe the the coach will be in a bad mood one day uh, and or the entirety of the week or 10 days that they're on trial uh, maybe the the kid is feeling homesick and doesn't perform that day or for the 10 days that they're there so there's a lot of a lot of, of things that you can't control at the end of the day. We try to put our, our players in the best kinds of environments and the best kinds of situations for them to succeed. But some, some of these things are are, are rather subjective. Um, so it's just one of those things. And and so yeah, and then from then on, you know, we try to to negotiate with whoever is our our, our point of contact to try to, to make a, a deal go through. Sometimes it goes through, sometimes it's a little bit more difficult. Uh, case in point, we had a couple um, players recently that went on trial to, to, to Dubai. Um, and one of the kids was of interest to this um, Dubai team, but in the end, we weren't able to, to make a deal go through. But it's also encouraging also for, for the players to know that they have some kind of interest um, from outside and there's potential for them to, to go somewhere else. And so it also gives them a little bit of fire in their belly to continue to work hard on a daily basis because sometimes it gets you know monotonous if you're having at the academy oh, yeah. from, say, age 10, you're there for the last eight years just playing, just playing, just playing. And it gives them kind of like a light at the end of the tunnel, something mm -hmm. to, to try to get to the next level. Um, so yeah, that's, it's always a, it's always a good thing. It's encouraging. And it's also encouraging for us, us, us people who work with our players to be able to know that, okay, yeah, we, we have done something that's good and hopefully we'll be able to, to give them an opportunity to, to go out there and do something great as well. Yeah, exactly. Because it's like you're taking them from 10, 12, even 14 years old. And with the goal, you're talking to their families, you're talking to them like, hey, if, if you hold up your side, which is putting 100% of yourself into this, into training every day, always trying to hit the next level, like we'll guide you, right? And we'll put you in that position. So for you guys as directors and coaches of the club, 
like being able to to yeah create and kind of foster those opportunities is is so key right to give them that that option um you talked about you know spain you mentioned dubai like has uh, i'm curious like obviously europe is the first thought and probably like the the overarching goal for most players hey i want to go play in like La Liga so so popular in, in Cote d'Ivoire or eventually in the mm-hmm. Premier League, right? And um or or in France. There you go. Yeah. Right. So so what are some of the like those markets that that you guys typically have connections with? So we think of the bigger European clubs in general, but what are some of those typical destinations, whether it's Western, Central, Eastern Europe, or 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 you know, uh we're talking about some of the Arab states as well, maybe in Asia. Like what are some of those typical uh points or who you guys are usually in, in contact with so um being a francophone country it's, it's much easier to to um to be in alignment with, with francophone speaking countries so the main destinations would be a france or even a belgium um at one point in our history we were actually affiliated with a club in belgium where uh the majority of, of our players would end up at that club uh we're not affiliated with the club anymore but we still have um connections there so some of our players were in, the, in belgium as well but uh, we also think about it really holistically because at the end of the day, you don't want to send a player at the age of 18 to somewhere where they're not able to succeed. So if we see it uh, that the player is probably not at the level to be able to play in a Ligue 1 or Ligue 2 in France, mm-hmm. um, then you try to see, okay, maybe they'll they'll uh, they'll thrive from the age of 18 to 20 or even 18 to 90 or 18 to 21, which are really the development stage of a new profession. You know, you're getting into professional training with people who have more experience you're learning and you're trying to get as much uh, experience and and game time as possible you know from the age of 18 to 21 uh, they might end up in in a Norway or or Sweden or some of those leagues which um which uh, one can argue are less competitive but they also give opportunities to the younger mm-hmm. players as well so I, I I would rather one of my players goes to a a, a Denmark or, or Norway and they're able to to perform well get that confidence score goals perform well and then before making a transition to a France or or even a pro league at the end of the day because you don't want to kill the talent by sending them somewhere where you know maybe they won't even have the confidence of a coach because the coach at that level uh wants to to perform and they want to win games and have a high impact straight away so it's just one of those things you need to also think about you know what's best for the kid and what's best for them uh over the, the course of the career as well yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, and because then their success is going to reflect on on you as an academy, and and the 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 next group of 10, 12 year olds and their families are aware of that, and they started to see that, and it's certainly part of your, you know, uh, of, of the club's reputation too. Um, what are those the when we talk about like you know trying to figure out a deal or not like for for the average person within football, they might just think okay. A team from, let's say, Denmark likes one of your players. They come in, they offer you a certain amount of money. You maybe negotiate on that, yes or no. If it meets the the threshold that you guys are looking for, you say yes, and we get it done and we go. So is it always just like a sum? Is it a sell-on fee? Is, like what are the different types of of transfer deals and the different like sort of types of, uh, yeah, I guess of, of deals that, that can be done within a, especially, you know, with a, a developing player? 
Yeah, with, with developing players, it's usually a combination of, of both ensuring that the the that the transfer fee is uh is is market value and getting market value for, for your player, which is something that's subjective at the end of the day. But we also need to ensure that uh, economically it makes sense for us or financially it makes sense for us and then also um you know a, a selling on fee retaining uh a certain percentage so it might be the case that you let a player go for uh a sum that is a little bit lesser than you would like to but knowing that you have a, a higher percentage of, of the sell-on fee knowing that the the player will probably perform well and then end up being in in a bigger league um down the line as well so it's it's a combination of both of the two things that you you mentioned um earlier um both the the transfer fee and then also the, the, the selling fee and then also ensuring that that the player goes to a place where he's also compensated uh, fairly um because you know certain clubs uh, will come in and and want to pay you below market because they believe that you know uh that being from Africa the the player mm -hmm. might want to or will be more keen on selling uh signing with uh, lower wages but you know we also ensure that you know given the country that they're going to they're able to also you know be okay in terms financially um you don't the worst thing is if most of their money is spent in like rent and food, etc. Right. So you need to make sure that they're they're okay, given the fact that there's also probably going to be some kind of financial burden that they'll have um, on their family that, that ends up staying back in. Yeah, exactly. And and there's those horror stories as well, mostly associated with these uh, less than than uh, reputable like agents and things, where you hear players getting dropped off in a foreign country and they're living in a a dorm with 10 other players or something and there there's no support and no resources. And it's like, just kind of like a, you know, not, not a great situation for anyone to live in, let alone like a, a young impressionable person making their first move in a different culture, trying to pursue their dreams professionally. So I'm sure there's a lot to consider there. You mentioned that sometimes it's, it's directly club to club or a lot of times agents will come and they'll see a player that they like. And I know there's, there's, you mentioned one of the first things you wanted to to be other than an investment banker was a football agent. Um, yeah. Now that you've been in football within a couple of different roles, like where do you see the the role, uh, you know, of the agent? I know a lot of times they're an easy scapegoat and people just say, oh, agents are, are scumbags or, you know, you have to be careful. There's a lot of scams in Africa too, which is, which is like such a, a plight and a plague going on right now of again, talking about that that desperation and just the the dream of being a professional. So it leaves a lot of people exposed and vulnerable, but what would you say is kind of like, you know, being within the industry, what could you share to someone outside, just a, a casual observer of like the, the role of agents uh, and, and kind of some of the, the benefits and maybe some of the, the challenges that they present to you, uh, you know, as a Academy developing players. Yeah, I mean, agents are, are a key part of this industry. Um, I would say that a lot of the transfers won't get done without the agents um, because a lot of times they'll even work on behalf of the uh, the clubs to be able to ensure that a deal gets done at the end of the day. They'll sometimes run in between 
the the buying and the selling club to ensure that a deal gets done and if done properly i know a couple agents who do their job really well and they take care of of, of their players um I, in an african context a lot of times uh the agents end up being kind of like a bigger brother or a member of the family that will also help you adapt in a new environment um i know some players for example who end up playing in in spain or even in, in portugal didn't speak the language but their agents were able to help them settle and take care of some of the things that they would have to do all the admin stuff um, so they can be able to focus on performing on the field because by the performance other they'll get more opportunities by the kinds of performances that they're able to put on on the field at the end of the day and then on the flip side you have some agents that are just in it for 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 the money uh, one of my good friends is an agent and I was asking him so what's the problem with you agents with you know selling selling um certain certain players to clubs that you know they're not going to perform well mm -hmm. and basically you're there to make money and he was saying that he doesn't do that but one of the issues you get also is because of the change of the regulations of being an in agent you can't technically be an agent of a certain player for more than two years so it's basically two years mm. and then it's a renewable thing so sometimes maybe you'll take a player at a younger age um and then when you put them in one environment they you know their first contract maybe they won't make that much money so you as an agent doesn't make you don't make that much money but you would have invested in the player to get them to that level right and then on the second and the third contract when it's the big move and it's time for you to also reap some of the mm -hmm. the, the rewards from the the hard work you put in then some of the bigger agencies come and take your players so that's one of the things that leads to some agents deciding listen i'm not thinking of the long term i'm thinking about the short term Maybe yeah we'll send him to a club in Turkey and I'm not have nothing against clubs in Turkey, but this is just an example um, where I, as an agent, will make fifty thousand dollars if he plays great. If he doesn't, that's 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 yeah. just the way it is. Um, so it's just one of those things, and it's very very important, especially in the African context, to be able to find the right kinds of person, right person uh, that's able to to manage um, the talent properly. Um, and the kind of person, like I said earlier, because football is is really mainly based on who you know and on relationships, like a lot of a lot of other industries sure. that is really exacerbated within football. You need to ensure that you're also with the right kind of right kind of, of, of agents as well, um, and not only based on the name because certain agents are former players and you think, okay, I used to see him, you know, exactly. uh, score in the 1994 World Cup yeah. or miss a penalty in the 1994 uh -huh. uh, World Cup. And in the end, you think, okay, he can be a great agent. That's that's not true. Totally different skill else. set, right? Yes, it, yeah. totally different skill set. Same way you could have been a great player and not a great coach at the end mm -hmm. of the day. It's a totally different yep. skill set. And so you need to do your research as well. Ensure that the agency that you sign with or the agent, the individual agent you sign for is also in line, that in line with what you want to do and and you know you're able to to do part of the journey with the person uh, and be able to maximize the the opportunities you can get within your your career. Yeah. What's uh 
what would you say within your role, a new agent, a new person comes to you? Like, what's something you're looking for? Like an initial like red flag or something that, okay, like this guy might not be, uh, might not be somebody that we want to, to do business with or to, to entrust our players to. Um, well, it really does. It really depends. I, I'm not one to, to, to judge uh, a book by its cover. Uh, but a lot of times you want to do your own background checks and to ensure, okay, has this person done any deals with anyone that I know or what's his reputation overall? Because yeah, you know, maybe you're able to do one or two bad deals, but then quickly enough, people know the kind of person that you have and your right. character then ends up coming, come, coming up and standing out. So um, that's usually what I end up doing. Um, um, seeing if I know other people who have worked with him before, what they say of him, and then also spend time with the person and try to get my own impressions on it mm -hmm. uh, at the end of the day. But like, yeah, you get your own read. But at the end of the day, you won't know everyone. And um, sometimes it's just one of those things where um, you also have to go with your gut feeling and 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 try to see if a deal makes sense at the end of the day, especially if a player already has an agent that you don't know about, um, then it's just one of those things where, you know, kind of your your hands are forced and you have to try to try to do the best you can. And then also mm -hmm. uh, cross your fingers that it's it's also a good deal. It's a good deal for the kid primarily because that at the end of the day, that's what you want, you want them to, to be able to fulfill their dreams as a professional and to be able to be in a good environment that's going to also help them push on to the next level um yeah i think this has been a, a, a great conversation john we appreciate you sharing about you know you personally and then the the avar academy and, and football within cote d'ivoire its benefits and challenges uh the way that we finish each episode here if you could finish the sentence because football because football is the world's passion mm. yeah something like you can that. you can add <laughs> that'll happen <laughs> Yeah. Awesome. It's definitely yeah. a true statement. I agree. I think, you know, that's how you and I met a couple of weeks ago, just because of our, our shared passion for football. And it really brings people together. And we see what this, this AFCON tournament has done in, in bringing the, the whole continent together. Uh, the Asian cup, the same thing is happening right now. We see what it means to, to so many. So, so yeah, I would agree is the world's passion and, and mine, and it helps me to, to connect with other people. Um, so awesome. Well, well, thank you, John, so much for your time. We're going to link to your LinkedIn. If there's any other things you'd like us to have added for the club or anything like that, we'll put those in the description. So everyone, please make sure you check out the Ivoire Academy. You can get the, the inside scoop on the next generation of superstars coming out of Cote d'Ivoire. Uh, and, and thank you all for watching the episode. We'll, we'll see you on the next one. Please don't forget to like, uh, comment and subscribe if you want to see more. But uh, yeah, we'll see you on the next episode. And John, thank you so much. It was a pleasure. And uh, we wish you a great day. Thanks, Andrew. Appreciate it.